A springtime Santa Ana brings on the heat in San Diego. Between now and Friday, we're going to have to deal with these bone-dry conditions, these unusually hot temperatures. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Pollution rates in California show evidence of environmental racism. When we think about black Californians, right, the piece of the economy that shut down didn't change, you know, the fact that they were still exposed to higher than average pollution, even during the shutdown. California may need new tools to assess the ongoing cycle of drought. And San Diego's Bad Madge Vintage Store scores number one in the nation. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can. All right? Thanks. We don't expect triple-digit heat in April, but that's what some areas of San Diego are looking at today and tomorrow with coastal highs nearing 90 degrees. Unseasonal Santa Ana conditions will kick up winds in the East County and reduce humidities throughout San Diego down to the teens. With Santa Ana's come concerns about wildfire and dangerous heat exposure, and also questions about why this is happening now. So joining me is National Weather Service meteorologist Alex Tardy. Alex, welcome back. Thanks for having me on again. Why are we getting a burst of Santa Ana conditions in April? So it's not unusual in April to see a Santa Ana wind, though the most common month is January, December, and even in the fall. But what is unusual is to have a Santa Ana wind and on top of that, have extreme temperatures. So in other words, have a heat wave or a dome of high pressure right over Southern California combined with that Santa Ana wind. The two, they basically replace the sea breeze, our air conditioner, and they result in these excessive temperatures. So are these two weather phenomena, the heat dome and the Santa Anas, are they separate or are they combined? Well, they're working together. So right now, as we speak, the Santa Ana wind is increasing. So that's the offshore flow. That's the wind that blows from the desert to the ocean. It's pushing away, uh, replacing the marine air that keeps us cooler in San Diego. And at the same time, above us is this massive dome of high pressure just pressing down on us. Now, if, if we didn't have the Santa Ana wind, it would be hot over the deserts and the mountains. But because we have the Santa Ana wind, that allows us to feel the same conditions as the desert and mountains all the way to the coast. So how hot and windy is it expected to get in San Diego? So wind, I wouldn't be too concerned about uh, unless you're in the back country. That's what we'll see wind gusts of 40, 50 miles per hour coming from the east, Santa Ana fashion. On the coast, believe it or not, the winds are going to generally be light. And because they are light means no sea breeze. Uh, and so we're talking about temperatures even in coastal areas 
getting well in the 90s. I think there will be locations between I-5 and I-15 that top out at 100 today and tomorrow. Are we in a red flag warning for wildfire danger? Every time we get hot temperatures like this or anytime we hear the word Santa Ana, you know, naturally our first thought might be wildfires and wildfire extremes. Um, In this particular situation, we are protected for the most part because we are spring. So if you look along the foothills in your neighborhood where you're not irrigating, naturally we have a green up going on. So vegetation and grass is growing and it's green. That's what's going to protect us for the most part. Now, can we get wildfires with this intense heat and with these Santa Ana winds in the backcountry? For sure. But we think because of this green up, that'll help limit the size and aggressiveness. Now, people may not be prepared for such hot weather in early spring. Is this kind of heat potentially dangerous? Yeah, it can be dangerous, um, especially, like you said, because it is springtime. You know, we're just not used to it in the early spring or in the winter or even in the late fall to have temperatures at record levels. So we're talking temperatures 25 to almost 30 degrees above seasonal averages in San Diego. We're talking temperatures topping out between 90 on the coast to 100 just inland uh, east of I-5. So we're talking about temperatures that are unusual, record-breaking type temperatures for early April. So it can catch people off guard. You have to take it serious. You have to hydrate. Humidity is going to be down between 7 and 15%, which means bone dry, thirsty type of thing. As if you are in the desert, you've got to prepare for as if you're in Palm Springs. Now, how long are these Santa Ana conditions expected to last? So the good news with all this is it's a relatively short heat wave, short Santa Ana. It looks like the winds are going to go away on Friday, even in the backcountry. So by the time we get into Saturday, we're going to see a dramatic cool down and shift to that sea breeze, that onshore flow that we know and love, the one that keeps the humidity up, keeps the temperatures down. But between now and Friday, we're going to have to deal with these bone dry conditions, these unusually hot temperatures. So deal with it today, Thursday. It'll be just as hot, if not even a little bit hotter over inland areas on Friday. Big changes to start cool down on Saturday. Does this unseasonal heat give us any kind of warning about what summer will be like? So whenever we get, you know, something that's unusual, like maybe a big rainstorm in the fall or a very strong Santa Ana or maybe really cold or warm temperatures, it's always the thought, you know, is this a trend? Does this mean that's something for the summer? I think in general, individual events like this don't carry a lot of weight for the summer. But that said, it does look like the overall weather pattern that we've seen the past two years, drier than average conditions in Southern California. Record warm 2020, a very warm 2021 over our mountains and deserts, almost the warmest we've seen on record. The trend and what we've seen doesn't look like it's going to change much. So we should anticipate more of these heat waves, even in late April, even in May, and then, of course, in the summer. There's no signal indicating that we will have a cooler than average summer. Okay, get ready. (laughs) I've been speaking with National Weather Service meteorologist Alex Tardy. Alex, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Stay cool. Hydrated. During the pandemic, 
the air got cleaner across the state. A new study finds that was especially true in communities where Asian and Latino Californians live. But despite the shutdown, industrial pollution remained high in communities where Black Californians live. The UC San Diego study suggests systemic racism could be behind the inequity. Jennifer Burney is an associate professor at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego. She is a co-author on the study, which was published today in the journal Nature Sustainability, and she joins me now with more. Professor Burney, welcome. Thank you for having me. So your study points out that you were not expecting in a state that's as regulated as California to see dramatic differences in pollution levels, but you did. Describe what you found when you compared pollution across the state. Sure. Well, first, I think um, in California, it's it's widely understood that on average, minority and um, Hispanic Californians are exposed to higher average pollution levels, but this is due to a bunch of different factors that are hard to untangle. So we looked at what happened to pollution levels during the immediate pandemic response, you know, back in the spring of 2020, when when really all non-essential services were shut down and um, Californians were ordered to shelter in place. And what we saw was that sort of in the shutdown world, when all of these um, emissions of pollutants really um, were dramatically reduced, that the atmospheric environment in California was a lot more fair vis-a-vis Asian and Hispanic Californians than kind of the business as usual economy. And because, uh, you know, environmental policy governs the emissions and control of pollution, you know, across the state, this is this is pretty strong evidence of a, of a sort of systemic tilt, a systemic bias, um, that, that during business as usual conditions, uh, we're sort of allowing our in-person economy to disproportionately affect Asian and Hispanic Californians. Hmm. And the pandemic shutdown uh, presented an opportunity for you to understand the levels of pollution in California communities. Um, During the economic shutdown, your data shows lower levels of pollution in predominantly Asian and Latino communities, but in Black communities, it remains high. Explain why that is. Yeah, that's right. Uh, this was sort of a, a really interesting divergence in the in the findings, right? So, Black Californians, on average, before the shutdown, um, were exposed to higher levels of pollution than non-Black Californians, particularly white non-Hispanic Californians, uh, and that didn't change uh, in the COVID shutdown. So that that really means that the the in-person economy, sort of all the stuff that shut down in that immediate um, pandemic response, is not you know, the main driver of that disparity for Black Californians. So what do you think is the the main driver of that disparity? Yeah, it, it's probably a combination of really the essential services that were not shut down. So things like electric power generation, you know, some components of industry, uh, but also, you know, the legacy of, legacy of historic um, racist housing policy like redlining, which has been shown, you know, to have its fingerprint on pollution exposures for a really long time through to modern times. So what does that suggest to you about systemic racism in state policies? Environmental policy, you know, is a very broad network of many, many different individual policies. And what we see here is just when you add those all up, right, everything that shut down, um, everything related to sort of how transportation is laid out in California, um, you know, air traffic uh, pathways, um, these things that really got dramatically curtailed, the, that whole system of governance of those emission sources is really tilted in a way that disproportionately affects um, specifically Hispanic and Asian Californians. So it's, it's evidence really of a tip in the whole system of many, many different 
you know, regulations of lots of different sources stacked up together, not, you know, one single policy. And how do you know that these pollution levels can't be explained by something else like weather? So the nice thing about this shutdown from a scientific perspective was that it it really, you know, flipped the switch of one piece of the puzzle, right? It turned off a huge chunk of the economy and we got to look at what happened uh, sort of in that environment. And, and what do these findings suggest about the policy solutions uh, needed to improve air quality in communities seeing the highest rates of pollution? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, I you know, the first thing to say is what shut down during that period. And the, the biggest component was transportation. So road transport. Um, you know, there was also a curtailment of, of domestic and international air travel. And so um, when you look at what was shut down, um, the natural conclusion from this study is that policies aimed at emissions from those sources would be expected to help improve this this set of disparities facing uh, Hispanic and Asian Californians. So transportation policy is a really easy one. I think what becomes more complicated is when we think about black Californians, right? The piece of the economy that shut down didn't change the fact that they were still exposed to higher than average pollution even during the shutdown. Um, So it's other components uh, of the, of the economy and and our policy environment that are going to need to change to fix that particular disparity. And so I think, you know, this this opens a little bit of a window on on how to get at the problem, but it also shows that, um, you know, there's no one solution that's going to address disparities faced by um, all non-white Californians. And what recommendations do you have for policymakers to ensure that there is more equity in the state down to the air we breathe? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, this is this is nothing new, but uh, we really need to have um, voices of all Californians be part of the policymaking process. I think what's a little um, frightening always about kind of systemic bias is that you know, it, it was sort of put into place <laughs> in in some ways through through kind of legal processes, right? A road was put in a given place, and transportation routes were determined, uh, and and none of that may have been explicitly biased, but the whole system is indeed tipped, right? We see evidence of that. So, I think really making sure that the most affected Californians are part of this process, you know, part of the discussion, part of meetings, part of stakeholder engagement. Uh, is really, really important. Um, you know, and the, I'd say the second thing we see is just we used um, a big network of um, privately owned air pollution monitors in addition to the public monitors uh, that exist across the state. And that really improved our ability to measure these gradients at fine scale and to, and to really diagnose the problem. So I think the other takeaway is um, that, that all Californians can be better represented in policy if we're really measuring air pollution at a much higher resolution, right? Every neighborhood should know what their exposure is, and that's going to both get people involved and it's going to, um, you know, sort of make it impossible for regulators to look away. I've been speaking with Jennifer Burney, an associate professor at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego. Professor Burney, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. California's rainy season is officially over, and most of the state heads into its traditional dry season already in drought. Now, this year's Sierra Nevada snowpack is just 39% of average, but it's now more than the amount of snow and rainfall that determines California's water supply. Scientists say climate change has created a cycle of drought that is increasingly hard to reverse. And the old policy models that have been used to manage water in the West do not reflect those changes. Joining me is Dr. Andrew Schwartz. He's lead scientist and station manager at the Central Sierra Snow Laboratory at UC Berkeley. He wrote an opinion piece this week in the New York Times about what worries him most about the drought. And Andrew, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Maureen. Now, you joined in measuring the year's snowpack in the Sierra Nevadas recently. What were the conditions like? It's looking pretty dry at this point. We did have several points where there would normally be snow sitting on the ground that were completely dry. And as you mentioned, we're only at about 39% of average. And actually, since then, we've lost about another 10% in the last week. Wow. Well, we got drenched with snow and rain last October and December. Why didn't that help ease the drought? Yeah, we did. We've had this kind of weather whiplash going on this winter. We had the second snowiest December on record, and then the largest December on record here at the lab going all the way back to 1970. But unfortunately, in between those periods of big precipitation, we've also had very, very dry periods, some record dry periods, in fact including one that went from November through basically the middle of December, and then another one that started in the middle of January and lasted for 37 days into the beginning and and middle of February. And that's the longest dry streak during the winter that we've had here on record as well. So even though we've had that great precipitation, it's come in these large bursts, and we still haven't been able to get back up to average where we would hope to be. And you write that the drought itself affects the Earth's ability to absorb that rain when it does fall. Yeah, that's correct. So one of the issues that we're always concerned about with these types of extended droughts or particularly warm periods is that the soil itself will dry out and almost lose its ability to retain water. Um, Or in another case, depending on your soil type, can actually pull up so much of the water from any new rainfall that it doesn't make it into streams and then our reservoirs. And so as a result, 
the drought is kind of in a way self-perpetuating. We get this long period of dry soils. And then when we get these heavy rain events, they can either be completely absorbed by the soil or cause flash flooding that then doesn't end up in the reservoirs where we necessarily need it. And of course, the drought is responsible for more wildfires in California. And the wildfires themselves apparently change the way the snow melts. Tell us about that. That's completely right. Forest fires alter the way our snow melts. Oftentimes, we see faster melt as a result of forest fires because it removes that wonderful canopy in the trees. And then we end up with more incoming solar radiation from the sun, of course, to heat the snow. And it also means that we have less pine needles and branches to block wind, which increases evaporation. So these forest fires actually can potentially put us in worse drought conditions because we don't have the ability to manage the water coming out of these burn scars as easily, which of course then the following year can create more fires. It's kind of this awful feedback loop in a way. So considering that, you argue in your essay that the models used by federal and state agencies to manage water during times of drought are outdated. Tell us more. Yeah, and I do want to be clear, not that doesn't necessarily mean that all of them are outdated. There are many of them that are really quite good. But broadly, we have a lot of models that aren't sufficient in the West. And as a result, these are the ones that we really need to improve upon because these are the ones that we may need to use for managing our water. Of course, this is a complex issue because all of them have different needs. Some people need more money for the model itself. Some people need more money for people to implement these changes. And some people just <laughs> need better weather forecasts for their models. And so it's a complex thing. And it, you know, there's not one single hat that, that this issue can wear as far as one policy to fix it all. But it's something that we do need to address. What's the result of relying on outdated models? Outdated models really um, give us bad indications as to what we can expect for our water. Uh, and, and many of these may not take our soil moisture into account. And so as a result, we are going to wind up with potential shortages. Now, San Diego has invested heavily in creating alternative water supplies. We have a desalination plant in Carlsbad. The city's pure water program will recycle water for drinking. Does that mean that we here are insulated from some of the worst effects of the drought? I would say that does make you insulated from some of the worst effects of the drought. Uh, before I came out to work here in California, I did a lot of research in Australia, and there's a lot of big parallels between California and Australia with uh, climate and water. And they have implemented a lot of the same practices that San Diego have with reclaimed and recycled water, the desal plants. And that has helped prepare them for these very large droughts in the communities that haven't done that have wound up in pretty bad shape. So I would say that by taking these initiatives towards other solutions to water, San Diego may be better prepared than other parts of California. Would it be possible to mitigate some of the damage done to the soil and landscape by the drought and wildfire? Maybe by soil management of some kind, programs, something similar? You know, soil will definitely be one area that we have to watch closely, but more so than maybe improving the soil overall, just understanding what's happening with it in terms of measurements is probably the biggest step that we should be taking. Now, you wrote this opinion essay about what worries you most about the drought. What do you think policymakers should be doing to respond to the threat of ongoing drought and wildfire? 
One of the more complicated aspects, of course, of Water in the West is that there are so many different agencies and so many different people working on it that it's hard to have a comprehensive overview of where individual entities lie in their knowledge and their modeling. And some are far better than others. Like I mentioned, the National Weather Service has, has much better models than some of the other entities that I've spoken with. So what we need from policymakers is to really develop as cohesive and comprehensive of an overview of all our water management in the West, and then try for large-scale coordination and collaboration. Because individual entities working apart from each other um, is just going to create more problems than it solves. I've been speaking with Dr. Andrew Schwartz, lead scientist and station manager at the Central Sierra Snow Laboratory for UC Berkeley. And Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me on, Maureen. There have been developments in the investigation into this past weekend's downtown Sacramento shooting that left six people dead and 12 wounded. Police now say at least five people were directly involved in the shootings and that the incident was sparked by gang rivalries. Sacramento Bee reporter Sam Stanton joined Saul Gonzalez from the California Report with the latest. So, Sam, what do we need to know right now about the investigation? Well, the police here are going through hundreds of videos that were taken by uh, bystanders downtown, as well as by uh, police cameras and other cameras that are in the area. They expect to begin um, filing homicide charges relatively soon. So far, no one has been charged directly with any of the shooting that took place. There were more than 100 shell casings recovered from the streets downtown. But the only charges that have been filed so far surround prohibited persons carrying firearms. And why do police believe there's a lot of gang involvement in in this incident? Well, at least two of the uh, six people who were killed have gang affiliations. According to the court records we've seen, they suspect that there are more with gang ties from those groups. There are various videos on social media online showing some of the participants discussing gangs prior to the uh, shootout. And the evidence that they have seen doesn't reflect what they initially said, that it it really wasn't a mass shooting as much as a gunfight on the streets of Sacramento. And just stepping back away from this particular mass shooting for a moment and to the gang landscape generally in Sacramento, is this something that's been on law enforcement's radar in the recent past? Did they have an inkling that something like this could happen? Well, there have been uh, you know, gang issues in the Sacramento area for years. Years back, the, the feds partnered up with local law enforcement to try and uh, crack down on it. Part of the problem is there's been this pent-up energy from the pandemic. Downtown Sacramento, you know, until recently was virtually empty. And now that people are coming back out, the streets are filling up and the bars are um, very popular downtown. There was a a rap concert at the Golden One Center downtown on Saturday night. From what witnesses told me, the streets were just jammed with people from 1130 on until 2 a.m. when the shooting took place. And so part of the problem I've been told is that um, there are crackdowns in some of the East Bay clubs on um, the people that are allowing into clubs there. So some folks are uh, migrating to the clubs here. I don't know if that played a role in what happened, but uh, there was some kind of volatile mix. And there's a, 
a notion among some law enforcement that something happened inside this club that precipitated the shooting outside when the when the bar shut down. And just looking ahead, I assume then uh, uh, three people have been a- arrested. Could you tell us uh, what happens next? Well, two of the people who were charged with um, carrying a firearm as a prohibited person have already made court appearances. The third was in the hospital because he was one of the 12 who was wounded. Uh, so he has not made his court appearance yet. The five who are suspected of being shooters may be separate from those three. There's no indication that any of those three were involved in the shooting as far as we know. They haven't been charged with anything like that. In fact, I spoke with one of them yesterday who adamantly denied any involvement. That was reporter Sam Stanton with the Sacramento Bee who spoke with the California Report's Saul Gonzalez. Communities across California are having conversations about how to respond to the impacts of rising sea levels as a result of climate change. What you'll be hearing next is an excerpt from a California newsroom special called Climate Cost, the High Price of Climate Change for California Communities. Reporter Carrie Klein of KVPR in Fresno picks the story up in a community that has made the uncommon choice to pull back as the ocean rises, a policy called Managed Retreat. We begin in a small city on the Monterey Coast, Marina, with Bruce Delgado, a botanist, and the mayor. We've already lost approximately 100 acres of our land to the ocean, and it's marching inland with the expanding oceans. And so we have to have a a very closely followed plan not to build in an area that we'll have to be retreating from in the future. So all of this infrastructure below ground and above ground that are near the coast now are planned for what we call a managed retreat, that they have to move inland, they have to move backward as the erosion moves forward, and then the new development has to be outside of that managed retreat zone. You know, once it gets above five feet of uh, sea level rise, I think right around 2100, we have residential neighborhoods, and that's, of course, the most tragic thing that we would ever lose. You know, the private and the public landowners agreed that yeah, if the ocean is coming, they've got to retreat. And the only question was, what catalysts would we use to implement actions? And so we've come up with what we call triggers. And if those triggers come to pass, then we have to take certain actions. You know, all this stuff is going to be very expensive. And everyone's going to be competing against each other to get the same grants. And one result is it's going to be that there won't be enough grant money for everybody, and so it'll be one more source of pressure to force communities, big or small, to uh, find more sales tax, find more hotel tax. We have a city hall and a staff and I think a population that is devoted to our coastline, and what we have right now is pretty good, but there's going to be problems that we have to deal with as the uh, coast falls into the ocean. And so our focus is to address those issues, and it would be folly to create more problems by building new development that has to then be taken out or have the kind of controversies uh, of where private owners you know, don't want to retreat that other 
other areas of the coast in California are having, you know, building seawalls is not a very reasonable approach for the long run. But there's an example where cities have their choices. They could saddle the future generations, they could cherry pick and take the easy route and leave the hard route for people that aren't even here yet. Or we could take care of the mess that us and prior generations made and then the next generation can decide what land they want to use and how they want to use it. According to the California Ocean Protection Council, communities in the state spend more than $400 million each year to clean up plastics. When marine plastic breaks down, it releases greenhouse gases. Such microplastics also limit the ability of plankton to eat carbon dioxide. From KCLU in Thousand Oaks, Lance Orozco spoke to a researcher in Santa Barbara working on a way to limit the harm caused by our bottles, bags, and takeout containers. The plastic that makes its way into our oceans can stick around for decades, in fact, even hundreds of years. The process of breaking plastic down is helped by plastic-eating microbes. It led UC Santa Barbara marine microbiologist Allison Santoro to wonder, how can you help those microbes do their work faster? We have a couple ideas that we're throwing around. One is that we might potentially be able to coat the plastic or embed living cells inside the plastic that are already able to degrade the material. So that at the end of the product's life, the bacteria that can degrade the plastic are already there. The research team is also exploring adding nutrients to plastics that might speed up the process. They're starting work with plastics that oceanographers themselves put in the oceans, ocean sensors that measure things like temperature and salinity. It's actually more expensive to go back out and get them than it is to just leave them there. So lots of these sensors get deployed and then they never get recovered. And that's a really, really small part of the global plastic problem. But we figured that since we're oceanographers, that's the industry that we're going to start to work with. Santoro is confident the concept will work. The bigger questions involve the lifespan of the new plastics they're creating and whether more ocean-friendly plastics are a truly viable alternative. In Santa Barbara, I'm Lance Orozco. To hear more of the program Climate Costs, the high price of climate change for California communities, go to our website, kpbs.org. They do their best to stay out of sight of people. So, it might surprise you to learn that there are up to a million feral cats living in San Diego County. In one part of the city, there is a unique place that provides care for dozens of these felines. KPBS reporter John Carroll takes us to this sanctuary where cats with nowhere to go find healing and love. At the back of an assisted living facility for seniors, there is something unexpected. So this is our main cottage. Welcome to Shanti's house. That's Christina Hancock. She founded Shanti's house five years ago, and it's not like she didn't have enough to do. She's both a lawyer and a critical care nurse. But then one day, while driving to an appointment, she took a wrong turn and found herself face-to-face with a feral kitten that would change her life. She named her Shanti. She began driving to the neighborhood every day to feed her. I thought I'll trap her and bring her home. And then I discovered she was tip of the iceberg there. Hancock soon learned there were more than 60 feral cats in the area. She and a handful of volunteers started feeding them, getting them spayed and neutered, caring for their medical needs. But Hancock says she knew that wasn't enough. They needed a place, and she had an idea. She contacted the owners of a nearby assisted living facility and proposed building a cat sanctuary behind the building 
And so Shanti's house was born. We have a ground lease for 12 and a half years for this. They gave us the space. The facility's management knew a good thing when they saw it. The residents love the cats. We'll come in in the afternoon and one of the residents will go, Sabina hissed at Michael. Or they'll say, Sebastian and Michael were doing somersault flips. So you might be wondering at this point, where is this special place? Well, we can't say. You see, Christina Hancock says if people know where it is, she's afraid they'll be inundated with feral cats and they've already got all they can handle. And Hancock made sure to tell us that the abandonment of cats or any other kind of animal is a crime. But for the cats who are lucky enough to live here, life is good. And so this all happened very organically. First, we built the first cottage to get them out of the rain. Then we're like, let's have a tree house. Then we're like, let's have a waterfall. The sanctuary is divided into a series of pavilions, each one an oasis of calm, of healing. And when it comes to healing, Shanti's house took a giant step forward a couple of months ago. Hancock took us to a recently constructed building. Unlocking the gates to give us a look inside. So this is the new infirmary that we just built, so cats can go in and out. So. But for the cats that don't need medical care, the vibe is still one of healing. Soft, soothing music and wind chimes are in the air. Every need of the cats is taken care of, but that means donations and volunteers are always needed. We can always use food, kitty litter, and volunteers. And we can use volunteers just to cuddle the kitties that are now tame and want to be cuddled. Things are always changing at Shanti's house. That's because the goal is to adopt the cats out once they've become tame. But if they remain feral, they can stay here for the rest of their lives. Christina Hancock hopes other people follow her model for a feral cat sanctuary. If you want more information or to make a donation, just go to their website, shantishouse.org. That's S-H-A-N-T-I-S house.org. There, you'll also see a lot of pictures of the feline residents and the volunteers who transformed this previously unused area into the place of beauty and love that it is today. John Carroll, KPBS News. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. San Diego vintage lovers rejoice. A local consignment shop has been given the distinction of best vintage store in the country by online review site Yelp, as determined by user reviews and ratings. Bad Madge and Company, located in the city South Park neighborhood, is a hub of upcycled vintage clothing, niche home goods, and other accessories curated from different eras of fashion and style. But what actually goes into running a vintage boutique? And how has the pandemic impacted how those kinds of stores operate? Well, joining me now with answers to those questions and more is Bad Madge and Company owner Tanya McAneer. Tanya, welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much, Jade. So you've gotten this distinction on the heels of a pandemic that's been enormously disruptive to small businesses. How did you have to adapt? Well, we did have to do a lot of pivoting. The COVID pandemic was a huge disruptor for us. When it first hit, it was in March of 2020. 
you know, the first week was really, really scary. I did a lot of crying and then I put my big girl pants on and said, okay, let's make this happen. The first thing that we did was we really turned to our Instagram and we had already built a a pretty decent following. And that really was the game changer for us. We turned to our Instagram followers. We started doing a weekly sale, almost like QBC meets Ellen. So I'm a host and I hosted a Thursday night thing every Thursday. And we just went with it and it was very successful. And you know, vintage clothing is an industry that's really seen a boom in recent years. How has the industry changed since you first opened shop? Well, I opened 11 years ago, and at the time, it was very focused on mid-century, 50s and 60s, and that was just my aesthetic. I really liked 50s and 60s looks, and now it's a little more towards even the 90s, so we have had to incorporate other eras into our mix. And during the pandemic, we noticed very huge shifts in what was selling. We didn't actually sell a lot of clothes during the pandemic. It's very difficult to sell vintage clothing without trying it on. It really is a kind of a thing you want to be in the room with it, you know, touching it, feeling it, putting on your body because vintage clothing fits very differently than modern clothing. So we were selling a lot more home goods. We couldn't keep a desk in our store, you know, for the life of me because everyone was working from home and we saw real huge changes in what was selling. It's like you had to have those accent pieces for the Zoom meetings. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> or just, you know, a lot of people had blank walls and they wanted something nice to look at when they're at home. Um, you know, and again, a desk, we couldn't keep desks in the store because they went so fast because everybody needed a desk to work from home or, you know, go to school from home. Can you tell us a, a little bit about the behind the scenes of running a vintage shop? How do you actually end up finding these uh, fabulous secondhand pieces that people want? I'm really glad you asked me that question because I have a lot of people that will come into the store and we are not a thrift store. We are a highly curated vintage store. And that makes a big difference in the way that we present our product. When I first opened, I relied a lot on estate sales and really going to like garage sales and really spending a lot of time out searching for stuff. Now that I've been around for a while, I tend to get a lot of phone calls from people. Maybe they're downsizing or maybe someone in their family passed away and they're dealing with all the items in the estate. And I prefer that because then I can work directly with the person and it makes it a little easier for me to go through the items in the home or maybe their clothing or whatever it is that they want to sell. I have a team of people that help me. We have seven people that work at the store. My operations manager will help me clean the item. Maybe it needs a little repair. Then the pricing part goes into it. So there's a lot of steps that make that item happen in the store. Um, Pricing, I tend to look online formats like eBay or Etsy because those are now considered full retail. So if you're buying on eBay, that's retail. Uh, For me, even with a brick and mortar, I'm competing with eBay. That eBay customer can find that item anywhere, you know, on this format. So when someone comes into the store, they can look on their phone and compare prices to the item that's right in front of them. So is there a particular era of fashion or style that you're partial to? I really like mid-century style. I like the aesthetic. Think Mad Men. Uh, One of my favorite shows right now is The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. That's my aesthetic. I think it's the old lady in me. I've always liked that look. I personally have 
my home decorated with mid-century uh, pieces scattered in with other things that I like. You know, I have a pretty eclectic style. However, I feel like it's really important to constantly be evolving. So we have been incorporating other eras into the mix. I do also like art deco. So I think it's just things that I personally like aesthetically wise. I do like a cleaner, more modern look, but I also really love color. And why do you think vintage has such a strong draw for a certain kind of buyer? You touched on this, but what are your thoughts? Well, I think especially with, you know, climate change, we really need to have a conversation around what we're buying and what we're bringing into our home because new things take that manufacturing. When you're buying something old, one, it's made better, especially things from like the 50s and 60s, they were made so much better. So the quality is a big factor for a lot of people. And then also just having something that was loved before that spark of joy when somebody buys something that was really loved by another person, and it also is an economic engine. I think vintage is definitely a very strong economic engine. Something I buy from someone, you know, maybe it was in their family for 50 years. I buy it, I bring it into my store. I might even have another dealer that will buy it and then they'll resell it. So it's this constant, you know, money exchange. So I think that's, an, again, a fun thing. You know, nostalgia is a big factor in vintage. People, you know, come in and go, oh my God, it looks like my grandma, you know, this is all the things I had in my mom's house. So I hear that a lot, that nostalgia of something that made them feel good, a piece of furniture. Sometimes it's just something that really speaks to you. And that's really fun. We have a lot of fun at my store. I mean, and do you see the same faces come through the doors of your store? I mean, what's your relationship like with your customers? Oh, I love my customers. They're so amazing. I have so many loyal, fabulous customers. I have just, there's a lot of people that come in every day. I have several, you know, ladies that will almost come in every single day. There's a lot of local South Park people that just are walking by and they want to see what's in the store because we're always changing up the visuals and making it look exciting. So that's a big part of the way that the store looks is it's always being re-merchandised and new items are coming in almost every day. So they want to see the new item. I'm so grateful to those customers because they have kept me open and kept the doors open because of their support. And, you know, there's a lot of, of course, newcomers. I have people from all over the world that come into the uh, store. I had people from Canada or had a young lady from Indonesia yesterday. So I try to engage with them when I'm there. And I have an amazing team that really makes an effort to get to know our customers and have fun with them. So it really is a fun place to be. You know, people tend to stay and listen to the music and dance and explore the store. You know, they want to, it's, it's definitely explore. Nice. I've been speaking with Tanya McAneer, owner of Bad Madge and Company in South Park. Tanya, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you.